Elizabeth Strout, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your new novel is O. William. It's out today. And I have to confess, I love this guy. I love William and I'm completely, well, not completely, but I'm slightly mortified that I'm admitting that I'm completely in love with a fictional character who's a bit of a cad. And yet he's one of the more interesting guys I've met on the page in a really long time. (laughs) Can I ask where this guy came from? I know he was in My Name is Lucy Barton. That's where we meet him very briefly, but this is a whole nother book. (laughs) Right. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to to be here talking to you. I'm awfully glad that you care about William because I found him intriguing myself. And it was very, very interesting how he sort of developed. I just understood who he was from the moment I realized, okay, he's a parasitologist. He spends his life looking into microscopes. And yet he obviously has cared about Lucy very deeply in spite of all the different things they went through in the course of their marriage. So given those facts and given his apparent limitations in terms of being able to socially engage all the time, I felt like I understood that there was some sense of integrity to him for me. And he is who he is. And I'm really glad you liked him a lot. That makes me very happy. (laughs) You have a note at the back of this book, though, that thanks Laura Linney for her role in creating this book. So can you talk about that for a second? Sure. Because honestly, Laura Linney played a one-woman show, My Name is Lucy Barton, in London and also on Broadway. And I was at a rehearsal with her. And she took a step forward and she murmured something about William. And she put her glasses on top of her head. And I will never forget it because at that moment I thought, oh, William. And that was the moment I realized, oh, let's think about William. Because of course he has his story. Everybody has their story. But she somehow it just blossomed in the air, this O. William. And so therefore I understood. And then I realized, okay, well, we've got some facts about him already. And my name is Lucy Barton. We know that he's the son of a prisoner of war and that his mother ran off with the prisoner of war when he was up there, you know, working on the potato farm. So we know that much. And then I just really thought, okay, let's go with this and see. And you've said in earlier interviews that you don't write in a linear fashion, that you create scenes and then you put them together. So Do you remember the scene that brought you into the book that ultimately became O. William? Oh, that's a good question. Um, No, (laughs) I don't think that I do remember. No, no, I'm sorry. I don't. (laughs) But okay. It was something that I was curious about only because we see William purely through Lucy's lens. This is a first person. Right. And that's, I find that that can be limiting because I, I'm very interested in different points of view. I just adore different points of view, which is why my, my other books have, you know, all these different characters and from their point of view is this and from somebody else's point of view is this. And so all of this has to be from Lucy's point of view because her voice is the driving force, I think, of the book. And so I have to do it in a way that we see William only revealed through Lucy's eyes and yet hopefully other things that come in through her eyes that she may not even be aware of reporting to us can give us a fuller feeling for who he is. There are so many surprises throughout this book. It's very slim. It's a very tightly written, and that's part of the pleasure actually of reading you, these very elegant sentences. I'm looking at my galley, it's 237 pages, but these very elegant sentences, and yet they're so revealing. 
Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, thank you. I think at this point with Lucy's voice, I have gotten into her voice enough to realize, okay, let's just land right there, ping, bong, ping, <laughs> or whatever. Mm-hmm. And even though the book is set in the present day, you cover their entire marriage, which yeah. is 20 years. You cover yeah. William's childhood and his mother. Can we talk about Catherine for a second? She's great. Yes. It was just wonderful because I realized, oh, wow. And that was not written in a linear way, but I understood as I was progressing through the book, as I was moving forward through the book, I realized this will be Catherine's story. And I really didn't know that as I started out. I was just sort of presenting her in the different ways that she appeared to Lucy in her memory. And then I realized, oh, wow, of course, of course, of course. So yeah, Catherine was a force. She was really something. And and I think that one of the things that I remembered from writing My Name is Lucy Barton was only that he had gone out to the Midwest to get away from his needy mother. And that's all I needed to realize, okay, okay, oh, let's play with this. And Catherine is much more complicated ultimately than we think she is. At first we right. meet her and right. she's a golfing matron of a certain yeah. age who likes to wear yeah. certain things and go on yeah. vacation in certain places yeah. and all of these things. But she believes in love more than you might think someone like her would, but she's not particularly good at expressing it. I know. I know. Well, she does, she does come from Maine. <laughs> and I can only say that because I come from Maine. So, <laughs> But there is, even now, in some parts of Maine, um, a little bit of a reticence about expressing these <laughs> feelings. So that's, that's something that we do have to remember, that she was from Maine. And yet, as her story gets revealed, I hope the reader understands more about why there were these sort of hiccups in her life and in her relationship with William. The hiccups, I mean, you know, little spaces that we can't quite figure out why they were there. But that's part of the beauty of this story is Lucy doesn't know everything. William doesn't know everything. Catherine doesn't know everything. And yet the three of them dance around each other as if they do. I know, because that's how we live. In my sense is that we all live thinking, oh, I know this person, you know, and I know that person. She's my mother-in-law. This is my husband, blah, blah, and so forth. And then time goes by and you realize, wait, who, what? So it was fun to push those extremes. I mean, I know you said William was intriguing to you, but I think from having read the book a couple of times now, it feels like you really love William. I do. I love everybody I write about. I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry that sounds so, you know, stupid, but I do. I love them all. <laughs> Did any of the three of them surprise you? Yes, they surprised me a lot. William continued to surprise me as I realized, you know, in his different conversations that more and more would come out and be revealed about him. I thought, oh, okay, I get it. That's interesting. And Catherine, as I said, she she really surprised me as stuff unfolded. And I thought, whoa. And look at these, as you said, these three people who thought that they all knew each other. And yet what enormous spaces were between them all that time. I have lots of notes in my galley that say disconnect, disconnect, disconnect. And Lucy and William clearly loved each other at some point and they yes, had two daughters yeah. that they loved. They were a genuine family. I know. I know. But wow, the disconnects and the disconnects are really significant. And at one point in the book, they go on a road trip together. <laughs> right. They do. They do. And in a 
couple of chapters, you reveal the fissures that were clearly there during their marriage that Lucy seems a little dismissive of, and then she'll just drop a line and say, well, you know, then I did this thing too. And well, you know, it wasn't all him. But William, you always apologize. And he said, well, actually, I don't. Right. And then she realizes, well, that's true. (laughs) Is that the moment where they really understand that things are done? Because they're Plenty of moments in the book, especially when they're with their daughters, and William's third marriage has now gone pear-shaped too. This guy is not good at being married. Poor William. Really not good at being married. Right. Oh, he's not. (laughs) But is it the road trip that reveals the fissures, or is Lucy just finally getting to a point where she understands herself a little better? I think that the road trip opens this up. For them, but they have had a relationship, you know, over the years, ever since they split up, they've maintained, you mm-hmm. know, a cordial relationship. And, and that's why he's telling her what he's telling her about his nighttime issues at the very beginning of the book, because they're not hostile to each other at this point. And they haven't been for quite some time. You get the feeling, I mean, they're not great friends, but they're, but they're connected still. And so when they end up taking this road trip, it brings back that connection even more. And the memories, of course, of how connected they really once were, all of this comes swimming up more to the surface. But I think that they had a basis for this because she says, you know, this is when he apologizes and she apologizes for things in their marriage. And she says to the reader, this may sound strange, but for us, it's not. Every so often this happens over the years. And you realize, oh, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I thought that was interesting. (laughs) So the road trip brings it a lot to the surface. But I think that they're starting from a place of some connectedness anyway. Lucy and William's childhoods don't exactly overlap, but they do have very specific mother figures. Their moms are both very intense characters. Right. And yet here are Lucy and William trying to figure out what their lives mean and what their life together means. And it's complicated, obviously, by their their backgrounds. And William is fully unprepared for what he sees at Lucy's home when when they talk about going to visit. Do you think William ever got over that? You know, it's funny. I think, um, well, we we don't really quite know because he's William. So we never really quite know because, I mean, as much as Lucy is her voice, William is his silence. (laughs) He has a variety of types of silence. And so I think that we never really know how he felt as they drove away from her childhood home many, many years ago. But I'm sure he was, you know, aghast. But let me just say something else about, because you were talking about they have very different mothers, but they have mother figures. One of the things that was very helpful to me when I realized, oh, he doesn't ever call his mother mom. He calls her Catherine. And I just thought, I don't know exactly what that means, but it means something. And so to him, she has always been Catherine or Catherine Cole. And I I just find it interesting because, you know, there are people I know not that many, but some people do call their parents by their first name. And I'm just so intrigued by that. And and obviously his mother wanted to be called mom. And she said to Lucy when they first got married, could you please call me mom? And she said, well, I'll try, but she never could because William didn't call her mom. And so that right there is something symbolic of Catherine's inability to be a mother in a certain kind of way. But Catherine 
She swans around their lives. She takes them to fancy hotels on fancy vacations. And Lucy is really profoundly uncomfortable. She gives Lucy golf clubs. (laughs) I know. Oh, my word. I know. Isn't that the saddest thing? Well, it's sadder in the world, but it's a sad moment. (laughs) Between the coat that she gives Lucy and then throws out the other coat. She loved that coat. She bought it for $5 in the thrift shop. She loved that coat and it's gone. Catherine's not good with boundaries. No, no, she's not. Poor thing. No. But the flip side of that is Lucy's mother who has giant walls and no sense of how to reach out and how to connect. And this is something you write about across all of your books, but we're really going to talk about the Lucy Bar- the three Lucy Barton yeah. books. My name is Lucy Barton O. William and the story collection, Anything is Possible, which came out, let's see, Lucy Barton was 15, the story collection was 19, and William is now. If for some reason someone hasn't read Anything is Possible yet, this is the story collection that's set in Amgash, Illinois, where Lucy's from. And it's the people that you meet as her mother is telling her stories in the hospital room in My Name is Lucy Barton. And it's kind of great because then you start to get more of the story and then you realize Lucy's not the best narrator, the most reliable narrator, I should say. Her mother's not the most reliable narrator. And this carries over with Lucy in O. William. And yet I trust her. I'll follow Lucy anywhere. (laughs) I know she's slightly unreliable. Well, we all are. Yeah. She's not malicious. She just gets the details wrong. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Can we talk about the structure for a second of these three books? Did you know that these other books were going to happen after Lucy Barton? How did Lucy Barton even come about? Well, Lucy Barton came about, I honestly, I, I think I just wrote, I can't even remember. I think I was like, in, almost came out in a frenzy or something. And and I attached it to my then editor, Susan Camel. And I don't, I don't, I cannot remember why I did that. Because first of all, I never sent her anything before sending it to my agent. And for all I know, it could have been an unconscious mistake that I attached it. But somehow off that went. And Susan called me up and she just loved it. And she said, you must write this book. And I don't think I would have written it without her being so enchanted with it. And that was enormously important for me. And so I wrote that book. Like I said, it it was really, it almost felt like a little bit of a, not a frenzy, but it was like, I felt like I was on a high wire and it was like, okay, you know, this was going to happen, happen, happen. But then as I was writing it and I was listening to her mother talking about all these people, I would think to myself, well, what did happen to Kathy nicely? And I got so interested that I would like literally walk around to the other part of my table and sit there and then write a few scenes about what happened to Kathy nicely. So in a way, I almost wrote Anything is Possible at the same time that I was writing My Name is Lucy Barton. I mean, I was making scenes up on the other side of the table as, at the time that I was writing My Name is Lucy Barton. So when I was done with that, I realized, oh, here we go. Bum, bum, bum. All these different stories of all these different people. How fun. And then a oh, William came because like I said, with Laura Linney, it just seemed to blossom above her head. It was, you know, but I wasn't thinking that I would ever write about William. The women though, I mean, Lucy Barton's mother, you could argue leaves because she's not present because Lucy's not there. They don't, they don't connect anymore until this right. five day period where mom comes to the hospital because right. William has sent for her and made it possible for her to come. And then in anything possible, there are multiple stories where women leave for whatever reason. Exactly. And that's when I realized as I was listening to her mother in the hospital, I understood, oh, this mother stayed with a husband who was obviously 
traumatized from World War II and not easy to live with, but she stayed. And this is her mother's story. I stayed. And therefore, her mother can only talk about all these other women who left and what bad endings they all had. And so that was the whole point of Lucy's mother's story without her even knowing it. And that's the beauty of Lucy's mom. Yeah. And <laughs> she is honestly one of those characters. I mean, she she does some things where everyone raises an eyebrow, but she does the best she can with what she has. Okay. And she does not have a lot. She does not have a lot at all. And then when Lucy finds out, or at least her siblings tell her that she was the favorite child, it just blows her away because she didn't know that there was a favorite one. But then you can almost sort of realize, oh, I bet she was. She was quiet. She stayed out of trouble. She got to college. Right. She made it out. Yeah. Yeah. But her poor mother, I, I agree. There's a lot to feel for that mother. And her own limitations come quite naturally to me because she was living a life that was very difficult. But then Lucy leaves William, which at the time is also a radical decision. There was a period in American history where divorce was actually controversial. You're absolutely right. You're exactly right. And especially the generation before when Kathy Nicely was taking off and Lucy's mother stayed, you know, that was really quite a taboo, especially in a small town in Illinois at that time, post-war period. But, but even with Lucy to take off was not something that every woman did by any means. But William's been left by at least two wives. Yeah. Did Joanne leave too or did he leave Joanne? No, he left Joanne. Okay, he left Joanne. But, you know, Lucy left and then his third wife leaves. Yeah, yeah. And William's a little bewildered. Right. (laughs) When his wives wives leave him, he's confused. He doesn't understand. He just doesn't get it. And and I think maybe that's part of the reason that you like him so much because he's just, he's genuinely bewildered. He's genuinely baffled. He doesn't really get it. And yet he's not a stupid man. And I I don't think he's a particularly mean man, even though he says he sometimes is. But I mean, he's just William. He's just a little bit clueless in certain ways. And yet then he's all of a sudden not. The punctuation in the title. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, because I saw it that way. I just thought, oh, oh, William. And I just thought, right. Thing, you know, surprise mark. And then as I was writing the book, I realized, look at all the permutations of the way that phrase is said. You know, it's like, oh, William. Oh, William. And I never had a different title for it. It was always going to be, oh, William, which was interesting. And then I realized, well, it works because there's so many different ways that oh, William gets said throughout the book. Did you have the title from the start or did that come sort of? Yeah, I had at the moment I saw it above Laura Linney's head. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know. <laughs> you talked about this briefly earlier, but I want to come back to it for a second because the first person narrative that you use with My Name is Lucy Barton and O. William, it's really intimate. It's a little intense. It's a little yeah. unreliable. Yeah. You've also used the third person omniscient with huge success in all of Kitteridge and all of again, and certainly right. anything's possible. How do you make the shift? How do you know, how did you know right. you needed to write Lucy Barton's stories in the right. first person? You know, it was really, it was frightening for me because I've always thought of myself as somebody who writes in third person because I can move around, can take the camera far away and drop it back down closer. I, I just felt like that was 
how I would write my stories. But I think that what happened is um, the Burgess Voice has a prologue and nobody ever remembers it, which is fine. But the prologue was written in first person and it was written by, not Lucy, and obviously that is not a Lucy character, but the first person, just a few pages of a prologue by a writer talking with her mother about the Burgess Boys. And I think that got me thinking, maybe I could do a first person. And then, like I said, it was Susan Campbell's enthusiasm that gave me permission to go ahead to do it. And then when I made Lucy a writer, that was even more frightening, partly because I think writers are you know, not very interesting to read about. <laughs> but anyway, I just thought, well, I'm, you know, let's go because she stays after school and she reads all these books and she realizes, you know, whatever. So, but I just, I just, once I made the decision, I just did it and hoped for the best. It really, really works. Okay. It really, really works. <laughs> As a reader, it really, really works. Thank you. Thank you. Are you writing for character first or are you writing for language first or can you not separate the two? I'm so interested in people. I have been fascinated by people since I was just my first memory. I just think people are, for me, they are the most interesting things in the world. So I'm always writing first about a person and the language has to match. That first, I mean, I trained myself for years to find the language that could match what I was trying to say. So at this point, it's almost one and the same. But honestly, it's always about a person who, if they tug my heart in a certain way, then I realize, oh, okay, they'll stay. If they don't tug my heart that way, then they get literally tossed on the floor. I think especially in the story where Lucy goes back to her siblings in Amgash and anything is possible. It is incredibly clear there with her brother sort of trying to figure out who Lucy is. I know. Buying a rug and cleaning the house and all of these things. It's a terrific story. It is one of the best stories I've ever read. But then Vicky, their sister comes in and wow, she is still mad. She is still... She's great, isn't she? I love Vicky. She's fantastic. Wow, she's mad. Wow, she is mad. Of course she is. I mean, you can see. And yet she does the kindest thing at the end of that story. It's amazing. It's just amazing that those three siblings have a relationship of love. I mean, that is love. By the end of that story, they have all demonstrated love for each other and for Lucy especially. I mean, I just thought it was astonishing as I found that out. But yeah, Pete Barton, it was interesting because I could feel him kind of like almost sidling up to me and he wouldn't sort of go away. And I realized, oh, okay, let's find out, you know, because he's such a sweetheart, you know, and then back in My Name is Lucy Barton, his mother says that he goes to sleep with the animals that are going to be slaughtered. And so that was, to me, an understanding of who he is. Poor Pete. And the three siblings, they do share this language. They do know how to love each other, but they don't know how to express it. And Lucy that to her marriage with William. She doesn't know how to explain who she is or right. how she's frightened or what the panic is. I mean, at one point, William looks at her right. in the car and says, I've never known what to do with your panic. Why are you telling me you're panicking again? I right. can't do right. I know. <laughs> I know. Which turns out to be a pretty funny scene, but never mind. Um, it's great. How they deal with that. But anyway, but right. I mean, Lucy, you know, she's, she's just a kid when she leaves that house. And even though everything changes the moment, you know, she gets into that car to go to the college. She still brings with her 17 or 18 years of, you know, of real trauma. You have a new editor for O. Williams. Yes, Andy Ward, yes. 
and he's the best. He's, <laughs> he's great. Lovely. He's just a wonderful man. But he is a new editor. So mm-hmm. what does that mean for you as a writer? What does that mean for your characters? What does that mean for the work? Because again, you don't work in a linear fashion. You like to put notes together and then right. create. Right. Well, I never show him or I never showed Susan except for that first little business of, of my name is Mr. Brighton. I mean, when I turn in the book, I turn it in as one piece. And I have gone through it so many times that I, I practically have it memorized. And so by the time it gets there, both of them, both Andy and Susan have been unbelievably respectful. And they're just so they're just so gentle in a similar way. They will just very gently suggest maybe maybe just a tiny bit more here. Or maybe another beat here is what Susan would say, and Andy says it in a different way. But he's been—he was just as—he was a terrific editor, and and just absolutely lovely and gentle in his suggestions. And I I just couldn't have been more grateful to him. So that was a really good thing. You for years have talked about thinking about what a truthful sentence is. Yeah, yeah. Have you figured that out yet? You know, I think I think that I have figured out when I hear it, I know it. It's not something I can explain, but it has to be truthful on every single level. I mean, it has to be truthful within the story. It has to be truthful emotionally. It just has to be a truthful sentence. And I have finally learned to recognize it when I hear it, but I can't explain it. So it's not just factual, it's the emotional. Your books, even though they're very thin for the most part, they're deceptively slim. They have big beating hearts. Yeah, I hope hope so. Right. And it seems to me that you can't separate truth from heart. That's interesting. That's very interesting. That's a really, really good point. I have never thought of it that way, but you're right. Yeah. If it's in your, yeah, I understand what you're saying. That's very interesting. When Lucy is trying to explain William to herself or the reader, whoever she's trying, mm-hmm. because she's frequently right. trying to explain William to someone. Right, right. <laughs> she's contradicting herself. Yeah. She is looping back on things where you realize that, wait, she's just told this a couple of different ways. It's kind of fascinating to watch her work through this mythology she has of right, herself, right. but also herself in the context of William. Right, right. And the reason that she'll repeat or repeat it in a different way is because she's trying to get at the truth. It's almost like a kid processing language or story, the repetition of figuring out. Because again, Lucy was not given a lot of tools emotionally. And this is why it's so interesting when William says, you know, he pulls the car over and he said, Lucy, I married you because you were filled with joy. And when I wrote that, I thought, there we go. And who knows why? She has no idea why she was filled with joy, but she she was. And you can see her as a young person, so joyful at that college, just filled with joy. And why? Why is she like that and not her sister? And she was just born that way. And yet she still was born without the ability to figure out how to deal with people in a certain kind of way because that's social learning and she just really kind of didn't have that. And yet she did have joy. And I thought that was really interesting when I, when I realized I would write that William said that. It explains her in a way that she didn't even know. It's also a really William thing to say. It's like, well, this is the most obvious thing in the world. 
Why do you not see it? And then he gets a little snippy because the other person doesn't see the most obvious thing. And his entire family, his daughters, his ex-wives, you know, his mother, I'm sure, even though we don't really have Catherine say this flat out, they're looking at him saying, sorry, I I don't understand why you are. Right. (laughs) You're a pain. (laughs) I know. I know. I know it. Oh, poor William. (laughs) There's a quick mention of Lucy's second husband, David, in a couple of different places in this book. Are we going to see David? At some point? Well, that's a good question. And I I can't, oh boy, I would love to tell you all about that, but I'm not going to because it's not good for me to talk about what I'm working on. So sorry, but right. But you know, we only see David a little bit because at the very beginning, she says, I need to talk about William. And then every so often she'll say, but you know, but my husband, David, you know, because she's just lost him and it's so private. As she says at the very beginning, you know, grief is such a solitary thing. It's like sliding down the outside of a long glass building while nobody can see you. And so we have that understanding that Lucy is like, she's in that grief with David. And so she can almost not even talk about him, but she has to every so often because it just bursts out of her. And that was also the first time she says in the novel that she really understood how it felt to be loved. And and it actually, her relationship with David makes her question a bit her love and her relationship with her mother, which I know she was absolutely convinced that she loved her mother and her mother loved her, even though her mother couldn't right. tell. And then she has right. a much more openly she loving relationship. She has a really loving relationship. And then it makes her, as she says, a little constricted in her heart sometimes toward her mother. And also time has gone by and so she only has those memories of her mother and she can't figure it out. But yeah, that's a, a sad undertone to her happiness with David. I'll sit patiently while you work on whatever we're not going to talk about. <laughs> but this, this is your eighth book. I mean, this is the first time you haven't really been able to tour. We're all in a virtual where you and I are right. doing this over Zoom. I have a sneaking suspicion that you have lots of readers who mistake you for your characters. Not all of them, but I. there are probably some folks who think there's a little more Olive or a little more, more Lucy, too. But have you learned anything from your readers over the years? You know, when I was on the road with my books, I loved to meet my readers because I could see in their eyes. It was the most interesting thing. You know, like in these lines, there would be people that would be very pleasant, enthusiastic and whatever. And then there was always somebody who would very quietly duck in and say, you know, please keep writing. And I was like, oh, you're my ideal reader. (laughs) So yes, I have learned things from their questions and their responses. I can't tell you specifically what it is, but I do understand every time I go to a new book, I realize, oh, right, that reader needed this, this reader needed that. Because I think about my reader a lot. And I do have an ideal reader that I'm writing for, but when the real readers sort of come in and help shape my understanding of what their needs are, it's helpful to me as well. Are you writing primarily for your readers or are you writing more for the characters or for you? I'm writing for my readers. Absolutely. In my way of thinking, I am writing for you. And I think of myself as being in a dance with the reader. You know, we're dancing and I have to take the lead. God forbid I would ever do that in real dance, but you know what I mean? I don't even know how to dance. But the point is, in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we're dancing and we're doing this together. And I am doing this for the reader with the hope that the reader will come with me, you know, for this little journey and 
even if there are parts that don't seem that pleasant, they'll feel safe in my hands and they will go. And then when they come through the journey, they'll see things just a little bit differently, just momentarily, maybe a little transcendence will happen in their lives. They'll just see, you know, the feeling might just be a little higher just for a few minutes. They might recognize themselves or they might recognize other people, but they will have somehow been a little bit changed and helped, I hope. This is from one living mind to another, as Thomas Carlyle used to say. I think, too, it's easy to forget that every reader brings their own backstory. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and so it's a different book for every reader, which is so interesting to me. And I think especially the Lucy book, because they're more porous. Yes. And there's more room for the reader to bring their own story in. I mean, no matter what I write, every reader will bring their own story, which is how it should be. But there's something about the way that Lucy is written that I do think of as porous, and therefore the reader will probably enter it more fully with their own story. You've talked about Alice Munro and William Trevor being major influences for you. Right. And I can see it with... Monroe and the revelatory moments as they build, I mean, especially sort of in a William. But if a new reader was coming to Monroe or Trevor, do you have a recommendation for where to start? I mean, both of them have significant bodies of work. Trevor's is... Yeah, I know. Well, I think Trevor's stories, I mean, I like his novels as well, but I, I would go to his stories because he just takes snapshots of ordinary people. I, I think the reason I'm drawn to both of them is because they're just writing about ordinary people. They're not doing anything else. They're just putting down a moment in somebody's life and you get to enter that life for a moment and realize, oh, that was, that was really interesting or, or not, but you're, but it's just ordinary people, which is what I'm writing about. You know, the people we pass on the street, these are the people that I'm interested in. And I think that his stories, they're just so well done. Like he can take one sentence and flip it over and its underbelly will just shine. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary that way. We've covered a lot of ground with O. William, but we're leaving out quite a big piece of the storyline because that's intentional. So people can discover it on their own. Right. (laughs) But what do you want readers to know about this new book? Well, I just hope that I hope that they can go to it with an open heart. And that would be, you know, my main hope because there's things that both characters do that might be Upon, but I've always said I'm not interested in good behavior or bad behavior. I'm interested in the murky, you know, the murky stuff that makes up our lives. That's neither good nor bad. It's just, but you know, all that stuff inside us that can't quite get pinned down. And so I'm interested in trying to bring that to the reader and and sort of articulate some of that the murkiness that I think many of us live with, no matter what our story is. And therefore, if they can come to O. William with an open heart. I hope they enjoy it. And also, I I think it's a real American story. I think it's very much the story of America and the World War II and then the Vietnam War. The whole war thing is a little tremor that's underlying. And then their their story, which is very, very American, it seems to me. Oh, I would agree. I mean, you're writing about class. You're writing about poverty. You're also writing about upward mobility. Yeah, yeah. In ways that not a lot of writers do. You're not judgmental at all about your characters. People no. make decisions in this book that are right for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I never, I know. One of the most freeing things for me about writing is that when I go to the page, I suspend all judgment. 
on my characters. And it's just so freeing because in real life, you know, we are judgmental, even if we try not to be, you know, we'll say, mm, or something. But when I go to the page, they're just who they are. And my job is to record them as honestly as I can. And that's a wonderful thing for me as a writer to be able to do that. And you do that so well in O. William. And, and if people can come to the book with an open heart, as you said earlier, I think they are going to be absolutely delighted. And Lucy, Lucy doesn't always get enough credit for being funny. I think you're right, frankly. I mean, thank you, because I think that she's quite funny. But then I'm, <laughs> I just get it. I think maybe I don't mean to make an insight joke, but I do think she's funny. I think possibly people may read the Lucy books too quickly because they're very readable. And so they just read through it, you know, like eating a bowl of peanuts. They just shove it in their face and then they're done. But I think that if you slow down a little bit and relax into the text, you know, you might you might realize, oh, yeah, that's really actually pretty funny. You go back to Maine with O. William for a good chunk of the book. Yep. Do you ever really leave Maine, even when you're in Amgash, Illinois, even when you're in New York City? I mean, Maine, Maine is its own character in a lot of ways. For anyone who's ever lived there, <laughs> we know. <laughs> I'm telling you, it is its own character, its own country, its own thing, Maine. And I guess it turned out to be a, a good thing that I was born and brought up there but it, it is very much the same thing and it was again it was very freeing to put my name is Lucy Barton in the Midwest and my husband and I went out there a number of times and drove around and around and around and we went to the graveyard to get the names and we really you know we had ourselves a great time and that was freeing to get out of Maine and to have the Midwest landscape that was a helpful thing but I obviously have to just keep coming back to Maine <laughs> the way I have to apparently keep writing about mothers too. <laughs> I think readers are okay with both of those things, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't be the only reader who's excited about both of those things when I see your byline. Elizabeth Strout, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is O. William, and it is out now. It's such a pleasure to have spoken with you. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for your TBR Top Off. Based on today's interview and the author's book, we recommend three titles available in paperback to add to your to-be-read stack. My name is James. And I'm Margie. And we come to you from our home store in Northville, Michigan, in the metro Detroit area. It is a gorgeous fall day here. The leaves are changing. The cider mills are running at full capacity. It's perfect. It's a perfect day in Michigan, you guys. You're totally missing out if you don't live here. The trees, they are a-changing. They're beautiful. So we have three books to add to your list today. And Margie, you got the first one. I do. So today we're going to talk a little bit about books that have a two-person relationship kind of as the central theme. We've got one that's historical. We have one that's contemporary. And we have one that is speculative. So we're running the gamut today. Excellent. So the first book we're going to talk about is Euphoria by Lily King. This story is inspired by the life of legendary anthropologist Margaret Mead. It takes place in Papua New Guinea in the 1930s, so pretty much the infancy of the practice of observing and studying cultures. Scientist Andrew Bankson has become frustrated with his research and almost gives up in despair when he meets the famous and controversial Nell Stone and her husband Fenn, both of whom have been working with tribes in the area. Reinvigorated by their companionship, the three scientists study the Tam tribe, and it doesn't take long for egos to start competing. Andrew doesn't think Fenn treats Nell with the correct amount of respect, 
but he can plainly see their physical attraction to each other. Meanwhile, he begins falling for Nell's incredible intellectual prowess and way of seeing the world. All three of them want different things and go about their work in different ways, and when one of them makes a mistake that threatens their lives, survival becomes uncertain. There are a plethora of great observations about how the act of studying a culture can change it, and how hasty conclusions can cause unintended havoc and harm, but the real center of the story is these three scientists, and how different forms of love, carnal desire, intellectual infatuation, and sincere friendship can also wreak havoc, but sometimes save you. And that title is Euphoria by Lily King? That's correct. Excellent. So I have one that I picked because one of the things that I feel like is grossly underrepresented in a lot of LGBTQ fiction is the trans experience. This book, Detransition Baby by Tori Peters, just came out in paperback, and it is a highly engaging story about a trans relationship. So Reese and Amy are both trans women who live in New York. They're in a relationship and they are living a high-end New York bougie life, which sounds like the dream. (laughs) But things, of course, do not go to plan as Amy detransitions and becomes Ames. And then the relationships uh, go in different directions. They start dating other people, but they miss one another. There's also a baby that becomes involved in the in the picture. And it's an engaging look at a modern love kind of relationship with trans characters as the main focus of the book. Really great reviews. It came out in hardcover back in January, but we love this book as a really interesting and thought-provoking read about the love lives of these two trans women. So I'm long-listed for the Women's Prize, and it was a pick for Roxane Gay's Audacious Book Club. So I recommend this one. And new in paperback, it is Detransition Baby by Tori Peters. And you got one more, Marge. I do. That was perfect. We really just slid under the deadline for this one to come out in paperback so we could recommend it. So I'm really happy (laughs) about that. The last one we're going to talk about is more of a speculative, although when I start talking about it, it might seem like it's happening right now. So the last one I want to talk about is called The Heart Goes Last. It is by probably, if you had to twist my arm, my favorite author, Margaret Atwood. Oh, that's um, that's the tea right there. Oh my goodness. She's my jam. So after a nationwide economic collapse that dominoes across society, hmm, mm. Stan and Charmaine have lost their jobs, their homes, and all most their hope. Living in their car, they are increasingly aware of the danger that is getting more serious as society slips further and further into chaos. After a particularly fraught and potentially violent encounter, Charmaine convinces Stan to move to the gated community of Consilience, where they'll have jobs and a home and peace. Well, for six months out of the year anyway. Mm. So every other month, the couple leave their home and become inmates of the Positron prison system, where Stan repairs scooters and Charmaine works in the hospital. At first, it's an answer to a prayer. But after a while, both Stan and Charmaine are beginning to see that something isn't quite right with Positron. They both become involved illicitly and without the other's knowledge with the people that live in their home when they're not there. <laughs> I know, that's crazy, Wow, right? she, so, you can see the look on my face. <laughs> while, they're, while they're in the prison, another couple that's usually working in the prison, so they are like opposite schedules. So they both become involved with the people that live in the house on the months that they're not living in the house. Hmm. Stan starts to learn things on the sly, 
that explain his sense of unease about where they're where they're living, while Charmaine fights to ignore the reality of her role in the prison hospital. And that's really just the beginning. <laughs> so this book will make you ask yourself, what would you sacrifice for safety and security? And alternatively, what would you risk for truth and freedom? Hmm. And that, of course, is Margaret Atwood. If you've read The Handmaid's Tale, which so many of us have, here's another one pick up by her. The heart goes last. Well, that's your TBR top off for today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast and for listening to the interview with Elizabeth Strout. My name is James, and you can follow me on Instagram at jamesreadingbooks. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Bookbrain. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 